There is, of course, a vast canon of music inspired by politics, some of which isn't dreary folk singers caterwauling over ill-tuned guitars in favour of peace and love against war or advocating similarly controversial sentiments. But what of politics inspired by music? Politics almost always has a soundtrack. Sometimes it is well and truly in the foreground. A country's national anthem is one of its most regularly unsheathed soft power weapons, whether it is one which stirs the hearts of foreign hosts and guests or induces them to clasp their hands over their ears. But established nations are not the only political projects which need a song everyone can sing. A decent chorus can rally a movement or galvanise a revolution. And though it is many decades since rock and roll could be credibly described as any kind of disruptive rebel insurrection in the West, in the non-democratic world it has offered hope to the powerless who needed it and discomfort to the powerful who deserved it. How can music be used as a diplomatic tool? When has it given a cause its voice? Can music still change the world? This is The Foreign Desk. I don't know if we can really understand the civil rights movement without understanding the soundtracks of the movement and vice versa. Can you really understand Benny King singing Stand By Me, the way that that was a coded message for civil rights workers? Stand by me when the night comes. Please stand by me. I mean, it almost sounds like a religious song. Is it kind of like a secular, sacred song, a secular, if you will, freedom song? In 1968, there was a breath of fresh air. There was some hope that the countries of Eastern Europe could loosen their grips by the Russians. That's how traffic was allowed to come in. It was the first really important rock and roll band to show up in Eastern Europe. And it was very special. That is when many musicians realized, hey, wait a minute, there is something going on in the West and traffic told us what to do next. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Joining me first of all from Boulder, Colorado, to look at the relationship between music and agitation for civil rights is Professor Rayland Rabaka, Director of the Center for African and African American Studies at the University of Colorado, Boulder. Rayland is also the author of numerous books, including Civil Rights Music, The Soundtracks of the Civil Rights Movement, and The Hip-Hop Movement from R&B and the Civil Rights Movement to Rap and the Hip-Hop Generation. Rayland, first of all, did the Civil Rights Movement actually have a more intimate association with music than most protest movements do? You know, to answer your question, I think a lot of this has to do with modern technology. I think it has to do with the evolution of African-American protest movements, strategies, tactics, techniques. The civil rights movement is unique in that, at least in my, in my book, Civil Rights Music, I argued that it had four soundtracks. So that's what's going to make it unusual. If you think about something like, let's say, the New Negro Movement and its artistic arm, the Harlem Renaissance, most people are going to associate that with ragtime and then jazz. So two at most. The civil rights movement has, as you already know, gospel music is a major soundtrack. Freedom songs, as distinct from gospel music, right? Freedom songs, a major soundtrack. So those are two secular soundtracks for the civil rights movement. It was a profoundly religious movement, if you will, but it also was open to folks that were so-called irreligious 
And that's when we get to rhythm and blues, what we call R&B, and also, wait for it, Andrew, rock and roll. Yes, I argue that rock and roll began as an African-American, if you will, form of music. And in fact, if you look at the first decade of rock and roll between 1954 and 1964, before what American musicologists called the British invasion in 1964, you're going to see rock and roll in the United States of America is incredibly dominated, if you will, by African-Americans. Some of the most iconic being folks like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Big Mama Thornton, so on and so forth. Is there an aspect of a lot of American popular music of that period going right through to Motown, where even perhaps if it wasn't explicitly protest songs, if it wasn't explicitly protest music, there was a subtext there, which quite a lot perhaps of its white consumers missed, but which nonetheless did embed itself in the culture? Absolutely. And in fact, part of the thesis of this concept of civil rights music is that African-Americans can implicitly sing what we cannot explicitly say about the existential situation that's going on here. Whether we start talking about anti-Black racism, whether we talk about at that time, Jim and Jane Crow segregation, what some folks even call American apartheid, where you have signs that say white and colored, right? So they're even dividing this country up all the while, Andrew, talking about democracy, talking about people getting together and creating a whole brand new society. And so there's a sense in which African-Americans have always been able to put in music what we often can't say in political discourse or in social discourse. And a lot of that often revolves around the African-American church, which is one of the few independently Black institutions where you could just speak freely, if you will, which is why you can see a lot of the political leaders also double as ministers or preachers. Of course, I'm thinking about Martin Luther King Jr., but also Malcolm X, right? Is this why it's important, do you think, for Martin Luther King Jr. when he leads the march on Washington in 1963, he gives his I Have a Dream speech, which is, I guess you could argue, is kind of a great rock and roll anthem in itself, but he's accompanied by a kind of mini rock festival. There's Mahalia Jackson, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Harry Belafonte, Peter, Paul and Mary, among others. Is that him understanding that the music is not merely an accompaniment to this? This is an incredible question because in my work, I argue that what the civil rights movement wanted was desegregation, right? Social desegregation. What you have with rock and roll, when Pat Boone, Elvis Presley, Roy Orbison, so on and so forth, Carl Perkins, when they began to sort of take these R&B tunes and flip them, right, with the rock and roll aesthetic and place them in the suburbs, that in and of itself is a kind of sonic integration. So again, think about it. Martin Luther King Jr. civil rights movement is preoccupied with social integration and the rock and rollers are preoccupied with sonic integration. And that's where we have to go back to Motown music, 1959, Barry Gordy is a genius. He's taking kids, much like myself, out of the projects, out of the public housing projects, cleaning them up, right? Sending them to social etiquette school, Diana Ross, The Temptations. I could go on and on and on. All of them out of Frederick Douglass housing projects, Detroit, Michigan, right? And so he's taking these project kids and he's crossing them over to the suburb. So now the youth 
in the suburbs are actually in the kind of dialogue, even if it's only through American popular music, there is a kind of discourse and dialogue going on. And Brother Andrew, I want to tell you, when the Motown artists come to these incredible concert halls and there's a little line through the audience keeping black folk on one side and white folk on the other, guess who broke down the little rope that was dividing these concert halls? It was often suburban white youth many of whom go on to be political leaders in the 80s and the 90s. I won't bring up Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton. I won't bring up. I mean, there's a lot of these youth who they really share a kind of social vision, not simply with the political leaders of the civil rights movement, but also the musicians, right? The musical culture of the civil rights movement. And in fact, I don't know if we can really understand the civil rights movement without understanding the soundtracks of the movement and vice versa. Can you really understand Benny King singing Stand By Me, the way that that was a coded message for civil rights workers, stand by me when the night comes, please stand by me. I won't cry. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. I mean, it almost sounds like a religious song. Is it kind of like a secular, sacred song, a secular, if you will, freedom song? I know you've written a lot as well about what came to be known as Afrobeats. Was it just as important, the musical accompaniment or soundtrack, to the post-colonial liberation movements in Africa at around the same time and a bit after the period of the civil rights movement? Absolutely. I would go even further and say throughout the Caribbean, this is where you have the introduction of salsa, reggae music. So decolonization, this whole notion of pan-Africanism, they begin to take what African-Americans are doing with the civil rights movement. Groups like, you know, Curtis Mayfield and the oppressions keep on pushing. People get ready. Aretha Franklin, 1967 classic, Respect, even though it's Otis Redding's song, when Aretha Franklin sings the song, she adds that black feminist dimension to it. doubles not simply as a civil rights anthem, but also as one of the most iconic songs of the women's liberation movement, which I don't need to tell you, Andrew, most of us argue starts in 1967. Just finally on this, has it been important to the civil rights movement at the time and the power of this music since that there's a real joy about a lot of it, despite the subject matter and despite the context, which separates it from very much the stereotype of the white protest singer tends to be, even if it is someone smart and sharp and caustic like a Bob Dylan or a Phil Ox or someone like that, there's still kind of an earnestness to it. Whereas if we think of Motown is the obvious example. And if we think of those as protest songs, and I think we can, there's that vim, there's that life, there's that excitement about them. You know, I love this because we have to be clear, artistic protest, musical protest does not always and everywhere mirror political protest. The artists have creative license, so they can do what they will with their art and with whatever color palette or sonic color palette, if I can borrow from Duke Ellington, right? And so again, they're painting with many different colors. And in fact, Andrew, I want to fast forward to the Black Lives Matter movement. See, we're living through a particular movement right now 
that I don't know if someone can understand Kendrick Lamar's iconic To Pimp a Butterfly album if you don't understand BLM and that that's an anthem when he says we gonna be all right. We gonna be all right. We gonna be all right. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gonna be all right. We gonna be all right. I'm, I'm just thinking I have been at rallies and seen little tears trickle down people's faces, right? After somebody else has been murdered. And we hate Popo when they kill us dead in the street for sure. And to a certain extent, that's very powerful. Beyonce's Lemonade album. And in fact, Beyonce's brand new Renaissance album. Can you really understand that if you don't understand the major movement at this time is called Black Lives Matter? And listen here, Andrew, the fact that we still have to say that, that lets you know we still have a long way to go, that we are still in the process of groping toward are limping toward American democracy. We have not yet achieved it. And in fact, I sound like Nina Simone right now. You see, I sound like, you better stop me. I sound like Richie Havens. I sound like Jimi Hendrix and sliding the family stone. I won't even bring up Parliament Funkadelic because after civil rights music, you have what's called black power music. And you and I both know black power music begat rap music and the hip-hop movement. I said it. I can see your eyebrows jumping up and down. I said it. The hip-hop movement. That our, our political movements seem to birth or breed musical movements that coincide with them. And it's not always sort of apples and oranges. I'm not saying that. And I can still just enjoy the beautiful love songs of Motown. But let me tell you this before I go, Andrew. Those African-American youth in the 1960s singing about love, these working class, working poor, ghetto, African-Americans singing about love and liberation, that in and of itself is a kind of protest. People don't think about how we love in the projects. People don't think about how we love in the barrios and the slums and the ghettos and even Eminem coming out the trailer park. You see, they're not thinking about working class people's concept of love and getting, let's get together and feel all right. This is Bob Marley coming out of Trenchtown in Jamaica. But his idols, Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions, Cabrini Green Project, Chicago, Illinois. So Bunny Whaler, Peter Tosh, Bob Marley, they saw these project kids. Wow. In Chicago, and they thought, hey, we sit up here in Trenchtown. That's a better model for us than some of these other models. Let's take that. And hey, man, Island Records, London, England, I better stop. Rayland, thank you for joining us. That was Professor Rayland Rabaka. His books, Civil Rights Music and the Hip Hop Movement, are available in paperback. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Joining me now from Brussels is Andra Shimuni, a Hungarian diplomat who formerly served as Hungary's ambassador to NATO and to the United States, where he played sometimes in a rock band called Coalition of the Willing, from whom we were just hearing. Ambassador Shimoni is also the author of Rocking Toward a Free World, when the Stratocaster beat the Kalashnikov. Ambassador, first of all, is it possible to explain what kind of resonance Western rock music had in communist Hungary when you were growing up in the 1960s? Well, you know, rock and roll music was a sudden window to the West. And 
I like to compare it to the internet. It was the internet of the day. So when we were listening to rock and roll music coming from the West, we were connected to our peers in New York, in, in Los Angeles, in London. And that's really, that was really the meaning of rock and roll music. So it was a time when Europe, the world was divided into the free world and the countries behind the Iron Curtain. And, and we were stuck behind the Iron Curtain, as I say it in my song. And rock and roll music really opened a window and broke the monopoly of Marxism-Leninism in Eastern Europe. To that extent, then, do you think it's fair to say that rock and roll did play a part in winning the Cold War for the West, even if that's not necessarily what a lot of the musicians who created rock and roll really saw themselves as doing? Well, it's interesting you say this. First, I'm a great believer in rock and roll music having to do with the breakup of the Soviet Union, promoting the ideals of democracy and freedom. A few years ago, I ran into Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, and Jimmy said, look, it's kind of fascinating what you're talking about because we were totally unaware. But now I understand that we did play a huge role. And so therefore, I think this is a piece of cultural and political history that has not been properly researched yet. You describe rock and roll as the internet of its day, but of course in that day there wasn't an internet and there were definite efforts made by Warsaw Pact governments to prevent people from directly accessing too much Western popular culture. So in 1960s Hungary, how much were you able to listen to and and how were you able to listen to it? Oh, are you kidding? (laughs) Every night we would turn on our radios, our little transistor radios and listen to Radio Free Europe, Voice of America, BBC, which broadcast rock and roll music mixed with very strong political statements. But, you know, my favorite was Radio Luxembourg. Most people don't even know what Radio Luxembourg Mm. was. That was the radio station which did not broadcast any political messages, but the music was the message. And that's really how we got to it. But also, with the advent of the cassette recorders, uh, reel-to-reel tape recorders, I mean, we had LPs smuggled into the countries, so it was unstoppable. There were some sanctioned concerts and tours in Eastern Europe by Western groups. And in your song, Waiting on a Train, you you sing explicitly about seeing traffic at Kistadion in Budapest, I think, in July 1968. How significant a moment did that feel, perhaps, or at least how more significant a moment did it feel to Hungarian youth than it might have to the youth anywhere in the United States or Europe that traffic could have been playing? In 1968, there was a breath of fresh air. There was some hope that the countries of Eastern Europe could loosen their grips by the Russians. And therefore, in parallel with what they called the Prague Spring, there was some moderation of the system in Hungary as well. That's how traffic was allowed to come in. It was the first really important rock and roll band to show up in Eastern Europe. And it was very special.
It was a turning point in Hungarian rock and roll history. That is when many musicians realized, hey, wait a minute, there is something going on in the West and traffic told us what to do next. That's when the genie really got out of the bottle and it was totally, totally unstoppable. When you think back on that period, knowing what we know now or understanding what we understand now, do you think that Western powers of the time actually properly understood themselves how potent a soft power weapon rock and roll and its attendant culture could be? Could they have done more with it in advancing the cause of freedom, democracy, call it what you will, in Eastern Europe? Well, you know, it's interesting. We were totally aware of what was going on in the West. And for Western youth, the youth of the United States, the youth of uh, Great Britain and elsewhere, rock and roll music was really an effort to improve democracy. In Eastern Europe, it was to obtain democracy, period. That was really the difference. I don't think they really understood the depth of the impact. And it's good they stayed away because you know what? There is a very fine line between cultural impact and propaganda. And I think in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, the West really managed this well, quote unquote, managed. And I think less government interference was a good thing. The period we're talking about, of course, is this period in which the depths of the Cold War coincide with what I think is looked back on as an extremely important era in rock and roll, if not an outright golden age. Do you think it's still possible for rock and roll, if that's what we're still calling it, to have that kind of cultural impact, to act as a kind of cultural ambassador in the way that it did 60 years ago? Obviously, I'm a great believer in the power of rock and roll music today. You know, it's interesting that if you look at the history of rock and roll, first it was, you know, pure rock. It was the Who, it was the Kinks, it was the Beatles, it was the Rolling Stones. And then came the progressives and progressive rock which really had an incredible influence. And then came punk music, which was, you know, in your face for all the governments, but especially in Eastern Europe. Let me make a very, very clear political statement here. (laughs) Some rock and roll groups in Hungary have started saying lately, hey, Victor, Victor Orban, we're coming for you. So I do think that rock and roll does have an incredible role to play these days as well. And, you know... Just look at the impact of Western rock and roll in Iran, North Korea. So I do feel that uh, rock and roll still has an incredible role to play. And this is something that maybe rock musicians today, uh, just like in the 60s and 70s, are not perfectly aware of but they should be. Just finally then, I want to ask you to reflect on your your own career a bit as a diplomat. Did you find during your career as a diplomat that your own personal interest in rock and roll did open up diplomatic doors? Were there conversations that you were able to have with other people from other countries or other organisations who you found had similar interests? Well, first of all, you have to do your job properly before you can pick up the guitar as a diplomat. I mean, <laughs> you don't want to be ridiculed as, as the singing ambassador. So that's not what we were. It was a real group. And, you know, I mean, one of the members of the band was Stung Baxter from Steely Dan. But I, I'd like to add that, that it is interesting that once we launched the band and people figured out this is not a joke, 
it actually acted as an accelerator for what I was trying to do to convey a message to the American audience that, that you know, I understand you. We are culturally very, very close. I understand, you know, what makes America rock, and no pun intended. And, you know, when the President of the United States, when Madeleine Albright, when Secretary of State Powell asked about the ban, I told myself, hey, maybe this is really serious. Ambassador, thank you. That was Ambassador Andra Shimuni. His book, Rocking Toward a Free World, When the Stratocaster Beat the Kalashnikov, is available in paperback and hardcover. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Most politicians born in the post-World War II era have to some extent grown up on rock and roll. However, making a thing of this is always freighted with the terrible risks of being seen to be too keen to be down with the kids. I'm joined now by Lance Price. Lance is currently Chief of Staff to the British MP Kim Leadbeater, but he was formerly the Labour Party's Director of Communications when Tony Blair was Prime Minister, some while after Tony Blair had been lead singer in a rock group called Ugly Rumours, photos of whom exist, though no recordings. And on the strength of the photos, the lack of recordings must be assessed as a blessing. Lads, first of all, among communications and spin doctor circles, was there any concern when it became clear to you that Tony Blair had at one point in a misspent youth been the lead singer in a rock band? (laughs) I don't think so. Um, I think it was one of the appeals that Tony Blair had to people that he was not a conventional politician and that he had interest outside of politics and certainly one of those was pop and rock music and that in his youth he'd been rather long-haired and not particularly successful member of a rock group. (laughs) Was there much discussion then about how you might be able to profitably utilise this fact of his biography? Well, I think it was useful in terms of presenting him to the public as something a bit different, a sort of breath of fresh air. Now, not everybody would have wanted to go and watch him perform, I'm sure, um, in his youth, and I don't think many people did. But the fact that he had got this in his past, as well as lots of other things, you know, he was a pretty good footballer, he had all sorts of other interests that kind of set him apart from the typical rather grey politicians that people had been used to. And that was definitely an asset. So when the media got hold of pictures of him with his sort of shaggy long hair and Afghan coat, I can't quite remember exactly what it was, but that's the image in my mind, it didn't do him any harm at all. This was also a facet of his CV that Tony Blair drew on once Prime Minister when he was ostentatiously keen to be pictured with the rock stars of the day, particularly those of the Britpop generation, infamously inviting Oasis to 10 Downing Street. What were the discussions for and against doing that? Was there any concern that the downside of making him look like perhaps a less serious figure versus the upside of making him look, as you were saying, like a something of a generational leap forward? Well, the upsides were fairly clear in that we wanted to show him in touch with the younger generation. You know, he was in his early 40s when he became prime minister. It was definitely a step forward for the country to have elected somebody fresh and new like that. And there was no point pretending he was anything different. So I think there were some definite positives about it. But at the same time, I think many of us were a little bit cautious, because these things can come back to bite you 
all too easily. And the history of getting politicians and pop and rock stars together hadn't always ended well. I think the one that people remembered, or if they were too young to remember, at least were aware of, was Harold Wilson back in the 1960s, having the Beatles into number 10. And then famously, John Lennon returned his MBE, I think it was, uh, because he disapproved of government policy. And you know, something sort of similar happened with Oasis. You do have to be careful about these things because you can't expect a pop star to you know, fit in with your communications strategy every day of the week going forward. So if you, if you associate with them too closely, it can cause embarrassment further down the line. And because we're talking about music and the way it can impact on geopolitics, was this aspect of Blair's background an object of curiosity abroad at all? Was there a, an international clamour to know more about ugly rumours? <laughs> I don't think there was any demand for sort of bootleg copies of ugly <laughs> rumours concerts that might have leaked out. And it's probably just as well that there wasn't. But he, I mean, Tony Blair was friends with and worked closely with other uh, world leaders of the of a similar generation, Bill Clinton being the obvious one. And I think the fact that they shared this sort of upbringing and enthusiasm for music gave them something to connect with. But again, it was it was a sort of fringe element to the serious politics that was going on, but one that I don't think either Bill Clinton or Tony Blair or some of the others were particularly troubled by and, in fact, could definitely see the value in being associated with them. It got a little bit embarrassing sometimes because, I mean, Tony Blair was very excited when the possibility of Mick Jagger or David Bowie coming to Chequers to have dinner with him arose, as it did, or Paul McCartney or Cliff Richard. I remember him hosting all of all of those figures at some point during his time as Prime Minister. And there was no doubt that it was something that he looked forward to more than perhaps some of the other meetings in his diary. Lance Price, thank you for joining us here on the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Our final guest today is the Grammy Award-winning singer and multi-instrumentalist Rhiannon Giddens, who has made it her mission to highlight the untold stories of people who have contributed to the musical history of the United States. I spoke to Rhiannon earlier this year on The Big Interview, and I asked her where her interest in American history and the history of country music had come from. I think the ground was set. Like, the framework was kind of prepared just living in the country with my grandparents, living in North Carolina. You know, I went to study opera. When I came back, I went to Ohio, which was, you know, 10 hours away. And I came back to North Carolina, and I discovered folk dance. I discovered contra and square dance. So Mm -hmm. I discovered this community where the music was all live music and a lot of it was old time music. There was something in that music, in the way the banjos played and old-time music, you know, as opposed to bluegrass, which is what I would have grown up hearing, bluegrass, old Mm -hmm. country. And this was an older, rootsier kind of funky style that I was, like, immediately attracted to, not knowing anything about the history of the banjo. So, like, I was attracted to the music and this community surrounding it, this idea of people are making music, people are dancing to it, there's no electricity involved except for the lights and the PA, you know, (laughs) and we're all just kind of creating this community together, there's no alcohol allowed, it was just, 
kind of a throwback to the, you know, some earlier forms of community making. And then I discovered the banjo was an African invention. It was an African diaspora convention in the Caribbean. And I went, whoa. And it just, it just changed the whole trajectory of my life because I realized that what I had been told this whole time was a complete and total lie. And so not only was I kind of blown away by, oh, wow, I don't have to ask permission to, <laughs> to play the banjo. Like, I never did. Like, anybody can play the banjo. But you know what I mean? You kind of feel like I'm kind of, you know, tiptoeing into this music that's not my, actually it's it's mine and it's it's everybody's, it's ours, whatever. But also it started me on this quest, which I'm still on and I'll never be off of, you know, if something this obviously opposite, like I was told the banjo was a white invention mm. in Appalachia, I knew it like I knew the back of my hand, right? If something like that fundamental is completely not true, what else isn't true? Does that idea, that received wisdom about the banjo, that it is, as you say, you know, an Appalachian invention, that it is the bedrock of country music, which is still, I think, largely thought of as white folks' music, does that strike you as representative of a misapprehension about country music? As a whole. Totally. I mean, one of the reasons why the banjo has been so central to my story is because it's such a beautiful representation of the overall shape of how American culture has been told, which is this idea of separation, this idea of largely Anglo, right, Anglo-Protestant mm. innovation, and then these other kind of like ethnic groups sort of like adding to it, you know, and inspiring things. And it's actually that is the most opposite of the truth there is. The truth is that there's been cultural collaboration from the very beginning. There have been multiple and extremely diverse cultural groups that have been coming over to the Americas, right? Mm. North America, South America, and Central America and the Caribbean since the very beginning, since the 1400s. Like there's no monolithic group that was coming over. And it's been a 450, you know, whatever, 500-year journey of cultural creation. What then happens is that this narrative starts to be told about that, and that is what people start to believe rather than, you know, because when you have caste-based slavery, when you have race-based slavery, that means that you separate everything into black and white, and all of the shades in between, everything in between has to choose or mm. is forced into one or the other. So you miss all of the multi-shades of whiteness, of blackness, of brownness, all the different people from all the different places. And so it's a very black-white, pardon the pun, way of thinking, which doesn't really fit how America came to be. But that's not what we learn in the schools. We learn that, you know, everything is immutable, everything's homogenous, and like black people over here, white people over here. And it's like, what is black, what is white anyway? I don't know. So my thing is that the banjo just represents a larger, you know, story that what it does is very harmful because it leaves out a lot of the story. And it also, you know, makes us believe that we have to put diversity back in, you know, we have to put it into American culture when it's always been there. You know, the immense numbers of Chinese people that have been in the States for generations. Mm -hmm. They're as American as anybody else, but because we're so fixated on race, which is such a false way to separate people, they don't have the same buy-in to the American story as, as somebody who presents as white, you know? So it's just, it's a large, 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 large <laughs> issue. And I just like, you know, I'm a musician. I was led to the banjo and the banjo is just one example, but it's it's a really beautiful one because it is the only, like, when you look at America as a nation state, it's the only American instrument. Like, disregarding indigenous instruments, of mm. course, which would have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. But when you look at America as the colony that it is, the banjo is one of the 
instruments that was created from what then creates America. So when you formed the Carolina Chocolate Drops, which I believe was after meeting the great American fiddler Joe Thompson, did you have a a sense of mission about the group? We did. You know, it was me and Dom Flemons and, and Justin Robinson. And after we started playing with Joe Thompson, who's was 86-year-old African-American fiddler, one of the last of the old traditions. Now, he wasn't the only black fiddler, but he was the last of this kind of string band tradition that had been passed down father to son or or uncle to nephew or whatever that, that kind of led back into slavery times. He was also a community-based musician that grew up in the community that he served. So it's a very old style of music that used to be done everywhere by everybody. But we were lucky enough to, you know, learn his family's music and to kind of get it passed down to us. And we created the Carolina Chocolate Drops, named after the Tennessee Chocolate Drops, which was mm-hmm. Howard Armstrong, who was a famous black fiddler, but more of a city style. That was his first band. So we kind of named ourselves after them and as an homage. Our mission was to spread not only Joe's music, but the story of the black string band, the story of the banjo, and complicating the narrative of where American music comes from. And the idea of, you know, black people playing fiddles and banjos was as commonplace as apple pie. And, you know, so that kind of led us down a particular path of we didn't really, you know, become professional musicians to be famous or to make a lot of money. We wanted to try to set the record straight. And that kind of has been our, that was our North Star and has been my North Star ever since. That was the Grammy Award-winning musician Rhiannon Giddens. Her latest album, You're the One, is available now. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.